This is One Heat Minute. Drop of a hat, these guys will rock and roll. What's your name? Wayne Grove. Look like gangbangers working the local 7-Eleven. Robbery homicides take me. Give me all you got! Give me all you got! I do what I do best. I take scores. You do what you do best. I'm trying to stop guys like me. A podcast dedicated to all 170 minutes of Michael Mann's L.A. crime opus, Heat, one minute at a time. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to One Heat Minute. I'm your host, Blake Howard, and joining me for the 154th minute of Michael Mann's (laughs) 1995 crime opus uh, is a really talented and really scarily prolific film voice. I discovered her on Twitter. Uh, I've since learned that she's a multi-time national award-winning scribe, screenwriter, self-professed movie encyclopedia, um, and and a tennis fan, which if on Twitter is to be true, a tennis fan. So, I mean, there may even be a tennis digression in this episode of One Heat Minute. There already has been one, a random discussion around slow motion cameras being used to show how beautiful Roger Federer does a backhand. Um, but but now we have um, the, the incredible Jen Johans. Jen, welcome to One Heat Minute. Wow. Well, I can't live up to that, but I would love to... <laughs> Roger Federer any day of the week. So, you know, if you follow this up with a whole Roger Federer hour, count me in as well. No. <laughs> well, but no I'm, I'm, so, I'm, so, I'm sorry. There's no more. There will be no tennis podcast. We can unequivocally say that <laughs> there will be no tennis version of this show. Um, look, uh, before we dive in and talk to Jen uh, more just about everything and her relationship with film and with heat, um, let's, let's jump into the minute. Um, so, we just, uh, if you were listening, the 153rd episode covered a pretty significant minute in the film as far as character building for Vincent Hanna. And Jen, uh, Jen's minute right now really dives into, you know, it has this coda with the wonderful Diane Venora before we get into another like really extreme moment of the film. So um, uh, I thought we'd just dive straight in, we'd listen to it, we'd talk a little bit about the minute and then we can talk to Jen about um, her her writing of film and her writing just in general and about this minute so and and her relationship with Michael Mann's 1995 crime opus Heat so if this is your first episode welcome um, and uh, and we'll we'll dive into this minute right now Jen and I are going to watch together you guys are going to listen along and then we're going to come back and talk about Yeah. Security, there's a fire on three. We have to evacuate all the floors. I can't leave here. Look, why don't we just talk about this a bit, huh, brother? There it is, Jen. Okay. <laughs> All right. That is one intense minute there. <laughs> it, it is. It starts with 
a poor, deflated Diane Venora, just sort of devastated and acting tough for tough's sake and then just sort of accepting that Vincent Hanna is just out the door, enjoying skipping down those steps. And then a, an extremely intent Robert De Niro as Neil McCauley, wandering down that hallway, discovering Wayne Grow hiding in that room as Jameson, and just by the luxury of the chaos he's created, they don't spot him. And yeah, the, I mean, that kick to that door and <laughs> is... is feel that kick. It, it is a pretty intense, a pretty intense thing. So you're a, a writer, a yes. screenwriter. You have a relationship to this movie somewhat. Can you talk a little bit about, you know, you seeing this film and your impressions of this film? And is it something that sort of sticks with you? Because I know that you are, if you go to filmintuition.com, you're incredibly prolific on reviews and particularly a focus on female directors and female creatives. But in this big gargantuan beast of a thing, what's your relationship to it? I actually saw this opening weekend wow. back in 95. Wow. Yes. I awesome. used to hang out with my older brother and all of his friends. I was like the only girl in the group and <laughs> we would go to the movies like every weekend. So I saw this thing opening weekend and it was back in Minnesota. So it was freezing. So then the joke for the entire winter was, you know, make like Al Pacino and turn up the heat. And um, <laughs> really lame jokes like that. But um, I am the only girl you're probably going to ever encounter who had a crush on Robert De Niro, like in the nineties. So I had a poster of Goodfellas in my room. Like oh my most goodness. girls, I know like, you know, new kids on the block. Luke no, Perry, it forget awful. it, forget it. It's yeah. Robert De Niro or nothing for Jen. <laughs> Alien on my mom's side. So we watched the Godfather series like every year. So I was very excited to get like a predominantly Robert De Niro minute. Of course, I mean, I'd be thrilled to talk about Al Pacino as well. But yeah, no, this was perfect. I was just going to say to you, I just want to let you know, my friend, my dear friend, Maria Lewis, who's done this podcast, uh, she's an author as well and and a a screenwriter. Funnily enough, if you you guys looked at some of your your, um, podcasts, your sort of skill set. It's like screenwriters, novelists, uh, you know, film writers. Um, uh, She doesn't love this film at all. And I haven't asked you yet whether you like it, but she doesn't love this film. But she said, she did text me at the time she was watching it for the first time. And she said, I'm not, I wasn't prepared for how attracted I am to Robert De Niro in this movie. I wasn't prepared for it. So I think, you know, you're totally, uh, you're not the first girl that I've heard that, but uh, you're definitely the first girl that I've ever heard was crushing on him hard uh, at a time when Luke Perry existed. So um, um, it's awesome. It's very awesome. (laughs) Definitely. No, I actually, I love the film. Uh, It was really uh, intense in 95 because casino came out yes i want to say didn't Same it come out like a yeah exactly and i saw that one opening weekend as well um and so it was two totally different de niro's but what was interesting is i was thinking about both films he has this controlled presence throughout yes. um you know pesci is the one who has the elevated emotions in casino and here it's al pacino yes screaming which until i found out he was playing like as if he was high a little bit 
it was kind of like, you know, chew the scenery, why don't you, a little <laughs> bit. Like, um, so some of those things kind of drove me nuts. I mean, there's so much fun to imitate and quote and, you know, all of the above. But until I learned that piece of it, and then it really made sense. But um, I was more like, you know, it was an interesting balance between the two men. And yeah, I was definitely drawn to the De Niro character. It's always interesting with man because he he's an existentialist. Big he time. loves these where, you know, the copper robber, they're always willing to risk or forsake any kind of chance at happily ever after even the prospect of it to just right some wrong in their life or tip the scales of justice the way they see fit. You see it in Thief. You see it in Manhunter, Coarse Heat. Pacino has that line about all I am is who I'm going after. But like so much of this movie, it could also apply to Neil. And it does, especially here. Um, They're both in pursuit of suspects, unbeknownst to Vincent, they have one in common. Yeah. He's a serial killer. Um, so that's always fascinated me that how much the two men have in common. And the other thing I love about his movies is the recurring theme of why would you want to live a simple life? There's yes. even like a really rude way of putting it. I'm sure you remember in Thief, uh, James Caan tells his love interest like what are you doing that's so terrific and it was kind of like, <laughs> it's it's the 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 james khan tuesday world <laughs> coffee shop scene is like an all-timer like it's the all-timer meet cute because it's like there's nothing cute about it he's like what the fuck is like what the fuck is your life so special for you know um it's it's so like devoid of artifice which is great and uh and i yeah. think one of the major reasons why that movie you know continues to play so beautifully it's because it's like it's so shocking to get people actually being candid in a conversation that is always so staged whether it's in cinema or real life you know that first meet it's it's you're performing you're performing your best self but i love about james khan is like no one james khan doesn't have it you know his best self is him all day it's it's who he is i know and man carries that through i mean collateral might be my favorite one after heat of his movies and there's that entire thing about his, oh, this is just temporary. Well, how long have you been doing this? 12 years. <laughs> and, so it kind of the same thing throughout all of these movies. Can, and, I, can I just say, let's just pause on that moment. That yeah. If you ever want to see a brilliant reaction shot, like uh-huh. it, it is Tom Cruise reacting as a character named Vincent too. Tom Cruise reacting to Jamie Foxx's character saying that. So he's like, oh, it's temporary, it's temporary. And he goes, oh, yeah, how long is that? 12 years. Like Tom Cruise's eyes and his <laughs> eyebrows in that scene. Like that needs to be a meme. Like can someone tell me how to design a GIF? Because it just needs to happen of like if someone tells you a reaction, if someone says something you're not expecting, you need the Tom Cruise face from Collateral in that exact moment. It is just perfection. He's like, what? 12 <laughs> years is not temporary, bro. That's a lifetime. Yes, it is. Definitely. Um, The other thing that always fascinates me about Heat is um, how much of the movie is cyclical and how many scenes from earlier on, like, pay off. Yes. Like, the first time Neil tries to kill Wayne Grove, the Heat comes around the corner and Wayne Grove vanishes. 
Yes. Now, he had his whole crew with him, and he still couldn't kill the guy. And what is the tragedy of Neil is now that his crew is, you know, mostly dead, basically, yes. he still wants to do it. And it's like if he would have thought about it, you know, the heat is going to be coming around the corner again. The heat is in a that... room around the corner, literally. Like we're seeing, we're no. cutting two, <laughs> and the heat is all over the place. The hotel is crawling with it. I know. It's just heartbreaking to think about it. I always, but I do love the fact that, I mean, it's a tremendous victory for him to be able to kill Wayne Grow. Um, of course, this like segues a little bit later into the next minute. I do apologize, but I do love that it's in a hotel because that's where Wayne Grow has been, you know, dispatching call girls all over town. So it's kind of like, again, with Michael Mann and the symbolism and things coming back, the death of Wayne Grow happens where he's killing people. Yeah, which he, I always kind of you know cold justice basically. Yeah, I think I think one thing you said there, which is so so spot on, is um, cyclical natures, lovely little echoes and nods, huge amount of payoffs. But also, it's so nice to see how vulnerable Wayne Grow is in this hotel, you know, because in yeah. that sleazy dive he's with the rich. dead crow, he's like. He's like a snake in a den, you know. He slithers, and and you know that that poor unsuspecting prostitute in her, you know, in a you know pretty wig, who's who's used to lying to grotesque men um, <laughs> in in hotel rooms, um, just doesn't know, you know. And Wayne Gross says that you know that's haunting and devilish line, you know. Uh, you know, you don't know what this is. And so what's wonderful here is he's in he's lapping up his comfort, he's got a robe on. There's just also something so deeply um so uh deeply satisfying at the justice, you know, this right being wronged uh because he's so comfortable. He's so yeah. happy. He's like I've done all this stuff and I guess that's just the masterstroke of, you know, cuz we've seen Neil be a bad guy for like a chunk of the movie sure. to this point. For about fifty minutes, he's not been a nice person, but we're still, <laughs> we're still so on his side in this moment, particularly because in the grand scheme of the universe, Wayne Grow is a guy that Wayne Grow is a guy that shouldn't exist, and uh, whether Vincent chases him down and catches him in the act in this series that we know is ongoing, um, or Neil gets him here, it kind of we're we're, we're satisfied either way. Yes, definitely. And he's willing to do it. It's, um, again, one of those Michael Mann things of the escape is just there. They always want to go out of the city um, to a place with water. I mean, you see that, like, they have the paradise there in Manhunter, and then he has to leave the water. And anytime they go for any kind of calm and beef, they're at water. So he wants to escape from the city. And it just, it kills you. He's like right by the airport, but no, one more stop. And right. yeah, I think uh, you had that, that that's... the tunnel. Didn't you have him on for that whole, when he hears where Wayne Grow is and he decides, nope, one more stop. I and sure it's, did. That's, yes. And um, it's perfect for it. Yeah. It's just heartbreaking. You can't escape his nature, just like Vincent. 
I'm sorry, I stepped over you right there. <laughs> no, I love it. No, totally fine. And what I was going to say though is you, you're right about that. Like that, you you said something at the beginning of the show, Jen. That like I think is so so perfect for these characters, and I think it's a, a, a massive one. Is like you said that the characters in man films often forego happily ever after to right a wrong or to like tip the scales of justice. And I think that, I think that that, I think that that's their great tension is that they stare out to this sublime ocean. Usually like that, this potential future, this paradise that they often is a fantasy that they've made up for themselves. So that, and it's all, almost like they're telling themselves that there is a fantasy right there to justify the behaviors that they're doing right now. It's like they're, they're promising themselves a future where they're going to be easier on themselves and easier on, you know, easier on their discipline, easier on their programming. And, and it's the kind of, um, in a way, it's, yeah, it's that, that kind of self-deception. But what's really great as we come to the, the rubber hitting the road, literally your minute is, you know, wedged between these two massive rubber hit the roads moments. It's like when Vincent get, gets given permission by Justine to leave, you know, you know, Pacino gets permission to leave by Diane Venora's wonderful character. Um, and, and she sort of collapses and has to deal with the emotional weight of now being a single mom, you know, taking care of a, a daughter who's, you know, experiencing some real, you know, traumatic emotional thoughts and, and obviously has gone through some physical trauma um, in an attempted suicide. You know, Vincent skipping down those stairs to go back into predator mode, to go back into hunter mode, um, you know, that's where he actually for a, a moment and he admits he's like, I'm all I am is what I'm going after. And like he, yep. in that moment, he actually knows himself to be true. And like Neil right now is making time to keep the programming, but in just minutes time, not even, it's a couple of minutes away. He's going to, he's going to follow his discipline to a T. The, the, you know, the heat's <laughs> going to be around the corner and in 60 seconds flat, he's going to look at his whole life, which is Edie, you know, this promise of this fantasy going to New Zealand. And he's just going to take a massive left turn and just get the hell out of there because he's going to follow his programming. Yes, exactly. And it's almost, um, he follows his programming. Also, I think when he acts on an impulsive idea, Mm. like he hasn't thought this out fully. No, no. He seems to, I mean, he got up the stairs, he made it, I know it was the, the crazy shot where um, the guy is looking out the window and he should be looking at Wayne Grow. I mean, he made it there and he had like the dumb luck to do it, but that was just kind of dumb luck. And for the entire movie, part of the genius of Neil was knowing when to walk away. Like yeah. one of my favorite sequences in the entire thing, um, when they hear the cop and he had, you know, and he just walks over to Val Kilmer, like we walk. And they do. Yes. And here he can't stop himself. And I think it's maybe because it just happened. He's acting on emotion, which is different for Neil. I mean, you know, he still has that cold precision, which he carries throughout the entire film. But you also hear it in the words that he says to Wayne Grow when he repeats, man loves to repeat lines. And I think also... (laughs) So do the actors. Yeah, uh, De, Niro, De, Niro. De Niro loves a line repeat. Loves it. To make sure that to make sure the actors listen. To make sure his co-performers are listening to him. 
Yes, exactly. And I think you you get that a little bit when he tells Wangro, look at me, and he repeats it like three times. And it shows that, you know, there's absolutely no mistaking that this killing is anything but like very personal. It's not the clinical, okay, this is our job. This is what we're doing. It's I'm taking him out. And I think it's, it's a different shade of Neil than we've seen throughout the entire film a little bit. Yeah. And what's so great is, you know, even though we've seen Neil attempt this, what's so great is that when Wangro looks at that viewfinder and it kind of dawns on him that it might be Neil. Like, he's not 100% yeah. sure, but it kind of dawns on him that it might be Neil. There is a real significant change in, like, the weather of his face. He's like... First, the brother line. Yeah, like, can we, we just talk, talk about, about this brother? Like, it's it's like... No. All like, the it's talk, on. All the talk, all the negotiation, all the slipperiness that he's been, all the evasive actions that he's been able to pull in his life. It's like, you know, you know, you just want to, you, you're hearing a line over and over in your head. It's like, bro, you don't know what this is. The Grim Reaper is visiting <laughs> upon you right now. You know, that same line that he says to that poor unwitting prostitute, like, no, yeah, the Grim Reaper is here. And, yeah. and it's just, it's just that wonderful poetic justice right there um Mm -hmm. uh, that's 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 about to happen to him and i just even even in just everything the 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 fear in his face that that starts there and we can you know as neil mccauley does we can break the discipline of this this show and, and and pivot to the minute um uh slightly after is that you know when that happens you know the look at me thing is I want you to have the certainty that you know that I'm the guy that's killing you. I don't want to, there's no pretense that it's anyone else. It's me. Yeah. And like the worst things we've seen Neil do, like that is probably the coldest, even though the audience is totally on his side. Yes. And what's interesting is, I mean, he doesn't even know how bad Wayne grow is really. No, he knows, you know, betrayed his crew and he did all these things but he has no idea what's been going on around town um it's interesting that you know he and vincent have no idea that they have another intersection in their relationship i mean these men are linked to to each other so much and they know it a little bit i think they can sense it but they have no idea how deep it goes and i found that fascinating that the linchpin is of course wayne grow of all people but it was interesting. Yeah, that that uh, what's so ballsy about this movie is just that man can leave that secondary entanglement by the wayside and just let yep. it all happen for us as the audience, and that can still go unresolved. And it just gives you that ache that you know Vincent's going to have a, a you know an interesting moment where he realizes that when they put this, when this series of murders stops and they start to find some physical evidence, they're like, oh, we've got that blood record on file. It's the guy who died. <laughs> it's the guy who Neil McCauley <laughs> shot. Like, just to, to wonder what's going to be going through his head when that little discovery dawns on him is going to be very, very interesting indeed. So it's one of those little, those tantalizing tidbits that happens. I know, for sure. I love that. Yes. I love the when you see through the police's camera that it's just 
it's undeniably Neil McCauley standing outside of Wayne Goh's room, the very thing they want to see, and all the chaos that he's created outside just has the cop looking out the window. And and everything, yeah. all the chaos of LA is there, and you just love it. You're like, oh, of course, of course the cop's right then. It's the moment, you know, we've seen the guys not really take it seriously. They were playing cards before. It's totally plausible that they're just checking out the window to see the... Yeah. You know, to see whether this evacuation is legitimate, and mm. that's it. I know, and it bothers you. Like, wouldn't that send off, like, your? wouldn't that send off something? Like, all of a sudden, there's a fire alarm? I mean, at the very time you're supposed to be watching this guy, but it doesn't, and of course it doesn't. <laughs> like, one of, the co- had all- one of the cops Maybe, goes, but- at least he, he does, I, I think the plausibility thing, because you got to, you know, you got to, it's like this in, internal bullshit test that we have with a movie. Like, at least there's, if there were still two cops in that room, you'd go, that's impo- that's ridiculous. But because yeah, they do was- they do the business to build us up to at least say in the previous in a couple of previous minutes that they're like, one of the cops goes to actually legitimately investigate whether there is a fire. Like, what was the source of the yep. alarm? Where did it go? This can't be right. Mm-hmm, the second cop, sure. the second cop then lets the team down. <laughs> lets the team down yeah. significantly. Though I guess that's the way, like, you know, when you're searching for something and you can't find it, of course he's looking out the window <laughs> at the exact minute, you know? Yes. It's just like, <laughs> yeah. We, we, they, these are little, um, that, that's like a, that's, that's almost like a horror movie, of course, moment. Like, of course you're going to go down those stairs. We don't want you to I go know. down those stairs. Of course <laughs> you're going to be doing that. <laughs> And it, it doesn't yeah. it doesn't belabor the point, so it's not not frustrating. But it's like, yeah. the, but he does he does know he does hear the gunshot. Yeah, um, and, exactly. And he makes his way out, and he's just trying to. And but he does the smart thing as well as a cop. Like he he just wants to subdue Neil. He doesn't want to just shoot him. He wants to stop him. I yeah. know, and I respected that. I actually asked a police officer because when Vincent um, runs after him and he mm. takes two shots at yes. Neil, and I'm like, you know, you're not really supposed to shoot people if they're running. <laughs> I said because of the bank scene, though, because of the level of um, chaos, like so much harm that could happen, he yes. actually does have the right. And I'm like, oh, okay, you know, I'm just anything to try to save Neil in my head. I'm like, come <laughs> on, you know. Wait, wait, but, wait, yeah. wait. We just have to clarify that point. Jen Johans just said on One Hit Minute that she just was so smitten with Robert De Niro that she had to make sure that Vincent Hanna was following proper police procedure in the pursuit uh, uh, to make sure that, you know, it was still okay in her mind. I think, I mean, if that doesn't earn you a spot in the Hall of Fame of this show, I don't know what is because asking questions of fourth, on the behalf of fictional characters that you crush on, I think is just outstanding. So thank you, Jen, for that moment uh, on this show, I have to say. I should probably say my uncle growing up worked vice and I babysat cops. So like I'm familiar with the police terrain, but ah. I was just thinking about that. Yeah. Like, you know, does he have the right? Because growing up and watching so many movies, I remember watching one with a friend and I'm like, why don't they just shoot him? And them? they can't shoot a guy when he runs. <laughs> and, and so, yeah, so that always stuck with me. And I'm like, so I had to check it out, but nope, Pacino was in the right. Well, that's even co- though, of course, dating. <laughs> even though, of course, you wanted Neil, you want you, you don't want him to do what it is so inevitable. But you know, on uh, during this show, um, 
way back and 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 for folks who are listening i'll get the exact episode i believe it's the 70th episode of the show um i had a um i had an australian uh federal police officer come onto the show um i'll just find the exact minute so i can um so i can point everyone out to it yes it was the 70th minute and um an australian federal police detective um who works in the organized crime division um and his name is redacted because he's still an active investigator. And I sort of asked him, you know, he loves the movie and he's a big fan and in Australia, a completely different, you know, criminal landscape and, and, and practices, I would assume, you know, vastly different as well as being super similar for certain things. But one of the things that he said was, even if they, you know, they, um, I said, what's the one thing for you that you would do differently. And he said, because if these guys were the guys we suspected for doing the, for the armored car, but we weren't sure. And then we found them doing that, um, that heist for the platinum where the guy sitting down in the car alerts them to their presence. He goes, well, I would have pinched them right there. He goes, I don't care. You know, that's I don't care point. if they went to, I don't care if they went to jail for six months, they're off the street for six months and then I can build a case and, you know, make sure that when they get out, I can keep an eye on them because I know that it's not going to be too long before, you know, they get into more mischief together. But, you know, that was that one thing, you know, from a really pure procedural factual perspective that I think that it's like, you you know, by the time that Neil McCauley and his crew have done this, it's like cops are going to shoot first and ask questions later, I think in this whole thing. Yeah. So the, the restraint of the cop who's observing that room is immense to say the least. Yeah, definitely. And that's a really good point that he had. And somebody does um, propose that to Vincent, if I remember right. Like, you Don't know, what it. do we bust them for? And it was going to be too minimal. And so he just, you know, throws the fish back, I guess. Yeah, but he made the call. Yeah. Yes, definitely. And I do have, like you said, Hall of Fame. This will probably get me kicked off the Hall of Fame. <laughs> when I was a kid, um, well, I don't know. Let's see. It came out in 95. Um, so probably Christmas of 96, my brother gave me the VHS of Heat and I gave him the VHS of Rocky. We wound up having to trade them because I didn't like to watch De Niro get killed. He didn't like <laughs> Sly Stallone lose. So we traded them back. It was like, yeah, these are amazing movies, but, you know, the wrong thing. So, yeah, I just couldn't. It's like, no, I can't watch him die. You know, got to watch him be, you know, Corleone or got to watch him do something else. Good fellas. But yeah. <laughs> so, yes. Well, he read it the part. He, that's so good. He read the, he read the part first. That's what is so cool. He read the, he read Neil McCauley and when I want that part. Can you imagine if they were switched? I mean, I'm sure people have brought that up uh, and they would have done a great job, but you know, watching it, you just—it's hard to imagine. I can I can imagine it, but it's like it's really hard for me to imagine it. It's really hard for me to imagine it at that point of Pacino's career. True, right after Son of a Woman, and yeah, definitely. it's hard for me to imagine it then. But if you said this movie was made in '84, or, or no, oh. sorry, or '85 rather than '95, so ten years earlier. I mm-hmm. would totally have bought Pacino as a cold-blooded, like, not much yeah. coming out. Like, you, you only have to look at, you know, 
big chunks of Carlito's way, Serpico, Michael Corleone, of course. Um, there's so many movies where he does play really cold, very minimal, and just like and lets that was- an ins- yeah. in- insular. And, and you know, and 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 you can totally see Pacino, like, uh, sorry, uh, De Niro, rather, all the way from Main Streets. He's like a he's like a blaggard and talking nonsense, and you know, big braggadocious, you know. And that's kind of part of his charm in some of those movies. Yeah, and actually, like mid eighties, Midnight Run. So that oh. was during his. Of course, fun, 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 fun movie. And Grodin plays the straight man. Like he's the guy who's like, you know, very, you know, very verbose and silly and all that sort of stuff. But yeah, that's the, the, that movie doesn't get enough credit. That is a, if you haven't seen, if you're listening to One Heat Minute right now, it's 154 minutes in, you need a break from, you know, watching De Niro. Die. Die. Yeah. As Jen (laughs) did. And you don't have Rocky on hand. Um, You need to have... (laughs) You need to have a, a search on the iTunes uh, library or your video on demand service and, and seek out Midnight Run. It's just uh, it's so good. Yeah. Alonzo Mosley, FBI. Yes. <laughs> Amazing. I know. Actually, I think those lines. And actually, and actually De Niro, uh, you know, uh, accurately hot wiring a car. You know, they took a lot of effort to show that in great detail. And uh, yeah, just great. It, it, a movie that like should have had ten sequels. They should have made one of those every couple of years, forever. Um, totally great. Did he really hotwire? I would believe he would. I mean, my favorite De Niro story is when Meryl Streep said he tried on seventy-five tan-colored jackets for falling in love to make sure, and sh- he had her there to make sure it was like <laughs> the right tan jacket. <laughs> and I just was. He's, she's like, it took forever. He would put it on. <laughs> and I like look in the mirror. Is this the jacket of the guy? No, take it off. <laughs> 75 of them. Anyway, I always love that story. Oh my God. That is so good. And you can see Meryl, like, you know, you know, a lot of, a lot of conversation, especially when they talk about like the greatest American actors ever skews towards dudes, you know, they're like, oh, it's Brando, De Niro, Pacino. But like, she's, out of sight in the conversation of best ever. And she seems to be so much less like she needs less, uh, like accoutrement. She doesn't need as much of that physical, tangible stuff. She'll just get there, get in the moment, know her lines and just crush it. Um, every single time. Yeah. And she doesn't need a lot of that other faff. It doesn't seem to help improve her performance. She just, you know, she'll, get in there and be in anything, be in any dress, be in anything. And she's ready to go. Yeah. Yeah. It's amazing. And from one movie to the next, you're never sure which Meryl you're going to get, which is always, always a treat. And she seems to have sustained it. That's one thing that these guys, you know, that are, that are in her similar class and she's been in movies around these guys for such a long time is that she seems to still just bring it. She's still bringing it. Every time. Great performance, every movie. Great choices. You know, very mm-hmm. rare misstep. Yeah, she's actually of the, if you want to say, of the three, Pacino, De Niro, and her. She has the most exciting career right now. and Oh, yeah, by that's, far. By that's far. rare. Yeah, very cool. It is, it is very, it, it, like, to say that, and also just consistently every, you know, it's kind of silly. You just go back through Oscar nomination years, and you're like, 
you just look at how many times she's been in a movie and almost like guaranteed with an Oscar nom, but so many of them are just great. You're like, wow, like she didn't win for so many good movies. So many really good movies, consistently good, stack of different yeah. genres, stack of different roles, you know, really aged into performances um, as well. Like, you know, not being afraid to play, you know, a crazy mum or, you know, those sorts of things. Um and and yeah. going going all going all over the map musicals of recent years as well like you know really crushing it across the board. I didn't think we'd go on this deep and Merrill dive, but I think that it's essential to talk about um, with these guys because hopefully they're about to turn it around in Scorsese's The Irishman um, coming to Netflix a little bit later this year, so we can see what these guys are like together and just forget that. Um, yeah, <laughs> we can forget what was that other movie? I don't even remember the name of it. What was that other terrible movie they did together? Righteous Kill. Righteous Kill. Oh, my goodness. That was awful. Yeah. You know what I wish, though? Speaking of um, Michael Mann, I wish he would have a female lead in one of these. I think it would be fascinating. Jada Pinkett Smith has a great role in um, she does. In, the, in Collateral. Yes. And the women of Heat, like, I totally forgot it had been so long that Ashley Judd was in it and she was amazing. amazing. I mean, they're all amazing. Yes. Um, but I do wish that he would have one lead character be a woman. I think it would make it an interesting dynamic to see, like, you know, one of these existential heroes uh, well, make it a heroine. I mean, look, you, you, Miami Vice has Naomi Harris. You know, pre-Moonlight Naomi Harris, who was absolutely phenomenal, and Elizabeth Rodriguez as, like, two of the, the, the female leads um, besides Gong Lee, um, who plays Isabella. I'm just like, if you're going to make them, everyone's dreaming of, like, let's let's make Michael Mann movie sequels. You know, there's a Heat prequel slash sequel novel that's coming out. But I would love them to see to go back to Heat and just have the partners be Elizabeth Rodriguez um, and um, and Naomi Harris in that crew, and then you could have you could still have Farrell and Fox bombing around, but like make those two the the leads, and um, you know I'm, I'd be all about that. Yes, and have them be the ones tied up with bombs around their necks instead of the women this time. <laughs> yes. That would be cool. Yes. No, I mean this is like a lot of fun, but it was like okay, one chick is tied up, and then Gong Li's in trouble. It's like can we go to a different well here? But I mean it's a fun movie. My favorite part of that movie is how many times they say "go fast boats." Like every time they say that. <laughs> yeah. for, anyway, I think I think go if, fast you, if you if you have a if you have to drink every time someone says "go fast boats," uh, I think you're yeah. going to be absolutely if you sip, swig your mojito every time someone says "go fast boats," and uh, it's it's going to be <laughs> absolute delirium. Look, this show, this episode has been a go fast boat. And um, it has been a go-fast boat, largely because of my guest, Jen Johans. Thank you so much for being a part of One Heat Minute. Um, it's been an absolute treat to have you. And uh, your, as I said, Hall of Fame moment is crushing on Robert De Niro in the 90s when um, there are all those other 90s heartthrobs, uh, including uh, Luke Perry, Keanu Reeves, uh, etc. And you were uh, all about Bobby. So um, I love it so much. Thank you so much for being a part of the show. <laughs> Thank you very much for having me. I do appreciate it. You're this wel- was a lot of fun. You're welcome. Thank you. It has been fun. Guys, at Film Intuition is where you can find Jen Johans and her website, filmintuition.com. Um, you can 
jump straight onto Twitter right now. You can find all that. And again, uh, she will update periodically um, new review updates. And there's just a stack of great content there. So I want to thank Jen a lot again for being a part of the show. Thank you, Jen. Okay, thank you. You have a good one. You too. Garth Franklin, thank you for our web design. Paul Davies, thank you for our theme. And uh, folks listening, catch you on another episode of One Heat Minute just around the corner where a man protagonist will forego happily ever after to tip the scales of justice and, you know, maybe do a righteous kill that's not the terrible movie righteous kill. (laughs) Very true. It's lunchtime at Tim Hortons, and we're serving up a special deal just for you. Our new $5.99 lunch deal includes your choice of any lunch sandwich and a side of crunchy kettle chips. Because what's lunch without a little crunch? And the sandwich choice is all yours. Like a ham and Swiss, Chipotle chicken wrap, BLT, and more. Made to order just the way you like it. Tim Hortons' new lunch deal. Simple, delicious, and just $5.99. Now that's a good deal. Only at your neighborhood Tim's. U.S. only. Price and participation vary. Terms apply.